Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, friends. In the world of darkness, we sadly are not going to have an episode of Blood and Syrup for you this week, but it does give me the opportunity to invite you to check out this very first pilot episode of the Valentine Heresy in the grim, dark future of not Vampire World, but sci-fi shenanigans it's a fun warhammer series it features myself laura and tyler as players it's run by the fabulous dm tom mcgee i highly suggest checking it out we also remastered these first three episodes so they sound better than ever they're more tighter and more fascinating than ever they're a great introduction to a new grim dark world for anybody who's only familiar with vampires otherwise if you love 40k it's a great way for you to enjoy that as well so check this episode out hopefully you enjoy it if you do check out the rest of the valentine heresy And we will have more Blood and Syrup back for you next week. Welcome to the grim darkness that is the 41st millennium. I am Inquisitor Caveat Ventus, Keeper of the Inquisition's Black Library. And this is my report on the Valentine Heresy, an actual play podcast set in the Genesis adaptation of Warhammer 40,000's Dark Heresy role-playing game. This report features Game Master Tom McGee, Ryan LaPlante as Inquisitor Lucius Valentine, Laura Elizabeth as Lyric, and Tyler Hewitt as Alto. What heresy awaits our trio in the grim darkness of the far future? Find out now in the first episode of the Valentine Heresy, where the Emperor protects the righteous and only the righteous. In the grim darkness of the future, there is only war, but there still remains a hope for all mankind. The Emperor on his golden throne reigns over the Imperium of Man, one gleaming hope for humanity against a galaxy that seeks to kill it, a galaxy of dangerous aliens, of mutant horrors, of the warp, of chaos. And it's his body that is torn from its throne, the last thing keeping his decaying carrion corpse alive and thrown at your feet. You hear a a death rattle, one last gurgle from an ancient, decrepit body before the last hope of humanity is snuffed out. Before you, you see ten figures standing in shadow, each of them vaguely recognizable from the mechano-arm of a tech priest, um, the distinct outline of space marine armor, the clinking fetishes of a chaos marine, the robes of a diplomat. You see these figures, and your brain struggles to understand what's happening. The Emperor on Terra has been untouchable since the Horse Heresy, his mind cast out into the warp to keep humanity together, and yet here stand these ten figures that have somehow managed to pull the last hope for humanity's survival amongst the stars out of the only thing keeping it alive. 
You glimpse each of them in turn. You overhear snippets of conversation. One of them seems to be larger than the others, speaking in a more relaxed tongue. And you watch as this figure sort of steps before you and you recognize the bulge of muscles and the, the huge teeth of an orc standing in the most holy sight of all of humanity. And you watch as this orc urinates on the corpse laying before you, laughing. You watch as they begin to examine the throne, begin to disassemble this ancient piece of technology from the dark age as they strip it for parts. You watch this, and the world you know and everything you've been taught to believe begins to fall away as you realize that the entire universe is about to plunge into darkness. And Inquisitor Valentine, that's when you awake. You awake to a sense of rushing air across your face. The last you can remember before the horrific scene of blasphemy you just witnessed was being aboard a ship, this ship, Gilead's Fist, en route uh, out of a sector of really no import, on your way to report back to the Inquisition. But the odd thing about Dauntless-class frigates is the air circulation in them has never been particularly good. So the fact that there's wind on your face is somewhat concerning. You remember a sound of rending metal. You remember the sound of screams. And then you remember the death of the Emperor. As you struggle to gain your bearings, you realize there's wind on your face because you can see the sky. And as you begin to blink the twisted images of the warp that still threaten to shred your very sanity, you see clouds, and they're moving quickly. And you breathe in through your nose and smell air, fresh air. And you realize you're falling. The ship is falling. And it can barely be called a ship anymore, because all around you, pieces of the Gilead's fist are plummeting towards an unknown planet. What do you do? I look for an escape pod immediately. Dauntless are how big, Tom? Are these like um, size or are they bigger? They're uh, they're smallish on the, the scale of craft. They're kind of like second last tier. So still big enough to be a, a proper frigate, still definitely has a large-ish crew. You don't command your own vehicle. You're, you're kind of catching a ride. And uh, as you kind of get your bearings, suddenly you can hear the alarm claxtons. You see a servitor skull bounce down the deck beside you and you realize that the deck is beginning to slant. Even though you're falling through vertical space, I want you to imagine the equivalent of a ship going down. So the ground is on a 45-degree angle. As you look around, you can see the hull has been shredded. You can hear screams and las gun fire coming from one of the nearby hallways. And you seem to be in almost a meeting room. You recognize it as where you held a couple of briefings with some of the command crew just to inform them of your purpose and you know check your credentials and all that. Looking around, you see a, a few bodies... You can see one looks like a uh, lieutenant that you had lunch with a couple times caught halfway in and out of the ship on a rent piece of metal, his body fluttering in the wind as the ship begins to plummet. From your remembering of the ship, the escape pods would be fairly close by, given that you're kind of near where the command crew hangs out. But, well, I mean, this is more a question for you than for me. How aware is Valentine of his surroundings on a ship, do you think? Probably aware of his surroundings functionally at most times. I mean, from a mechanical perspective, he's got very, very high perception. His whole thing mm. is to keep track of. But I feel like he doesn't know, other than the broad strokes of how ships work, he'd know the things he would need to know, which is like, where are the captain's quarters? Where's his way out? Where are the ways yep. between the people you need to talk to? That's probably it. Okay, cool. So you begin to struggle to your feet, which is difficult given, again, the incline and also the sort of um, lower sea chaos occurring around you. What do you look like? Inquisitor Valentine, Inquisitor Lucius Valentine, is about 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, he's tall, he's lean. He looks late 20s, early 30s. He's probably a little bit older. Like, he'd have treatments because they'd be delaying age because if he's an Inquisitor, they'd want to keep him alive. He's probably closer to, like, 40, 45, but still pretty youthful, pretty spry. He looks, like, if you're to take John Krasinski and add 15% Stephen Merchant. So there's a little bit of chipper British man inside a John Krasinski type. He's dressed like an Imperial Commissar. So a long black leather coat. It's very severe looking. He's got an armored breastplate that's got like the Imperial Aquila, which is like a two-headed eagle in gold across the front of it. Guns on his hips. He's got a chain sword. And he wears like a military peaked cap. It has the Inquisition eye on it. So he can wear that. But if he takes it off, no one knows that he is Inquisition. 
probably the most defining thing about him, other than that uniform, which is very recognizable for anyone in the Astra Militarum, is his eyes are bionic. If you look at them, they're actually steel and then it's emerald around the irises. And depending on where the light catches him, it's just got that, like, when you see a dog at night with the light reflecting in the eyes, they're there. And then there's scar tissue that goes basically in almost a full circle around his head, over the nose, to the metal eyes, and around to his ears, which it's subtler to see, but his ears are also just steel mesh inside. He also has bionic ears, and it breaks the hairline around his head. So the when the cap's on, it can, like, hide the sides of it. Mm-hmm. but you can't miss the kind of side scarring. He tends towards sunshades when he's meeting new people or wanting to stay inconspicuous just because the eyes are so finely done that it's very clear he's very important, hmm. whereas sunshades can help him blend in gotcha. when necessary. Okay, so with that in mind then, I think we're going to go ahead and say it's pretty easy for you to find a skate pod because being uh, someone who spends a lot of time kind of observing your surroundings – that's a thing you would notice. Like my dad worked in crisis consulting for a long time and like any airplane he's ever been on, he counts the seats to the exit and it's just a thing he naturally does. Mm. So I feel like it's that mentality. So you begin to force your way and it very much is like you can feel the ship is now becoming debris. Like the actual superstructure is beginning to implode. As you know, the Gothic fleet is not meant for atmosphere. So this is rapidly becoming like the world's worst drop pod. But no one in it's wearing armor. So it's going to be a very squishy drop pod. You begin to claw your way up the deck as the ship begins to fall around you. And ahead, as you reach the corridor that has the pods, you see uh, just a couple of Navy troopers get tossed full on up against the pod wall. You hear a sickening crunch as one of them just fully breaks against it. The other one, she gets to her knee and just starts offloading with a LAS rifle or last gun, I suppose, down the hall. And out of the sort of darkness comes a, a twisting horror that at one point probably had some amount of humanity, but the warp has affected it the ways that uh, the warp's known to do. So this abomination begins clawing its way towards the Navy trooper who is opening fire. What do you do? Is it steep enough that I can stand, Tom, or am I crawling? Uh, you're standing, but it's very much like, you know, walking up a stupid hill. Yeah, um, I think he he would reach up. He's got a necklace that hangs on like a very sturdy chain around his neck. And at the end is a symbol of the Inquisition with a red ruby in the center. And he would just press the ruby. And then around him, a refractor field would spin into place, which is a personal force field that shimmers a little bit in the air around him. And I think he would just draw his bolt pistol and say, oh, well, the emperor loves to put challenges in front of us, doesn't he? And then he would just raise his bolt pistol and chainsaw it in the other hand, and then he'd just start shooting towards it. If it's between him and the pod, then game on. Meanwhile, Laura and Tyler, the two of you are, on paper, incredibly lucky people. As humanity is stretched across the stars, all manner of habitation has begun. Some is very classy, uh, very plush, admittedly still in a grim, dark way, so everything's still pointing their skulls everywhere, but like mm-hmm. plush skulls, and the points are <laughs> yeah. extra sharp. And there are some tremendous cesspools, the death worlds, the places where it's you versus a jungle full of lossal raptors, and that's just a day for you. So the two of you are very lucky because you have grown up in one of humanity's greatest endeavors, one of humanity's greatest hopes. You have grown up in Galen's glory, the first and to your knowledge only dome city in the sector. So Galen's glory is a massive, massive, massive reinforced glass dome that from space almost looks like a blister on uh, the surface of the planet. Just as kind of a general visual reference, nice things in the 40K universe tend to be very gilt gold, bronze, brass, very um, steampunk almost, but like proper ugly steampunk involves a lot of oil and grease and everything's kind of gross. Mm -hmm. Um, So don't think like beautiful glass dome. Think like the image I have in my head is kind of like a Victorian greenhouse. So just mm. like they mm. tried to make it nice, but there's just so much shit in the air that it doesn't. Is it work. like a fish tank that hasn't been cleaned? Yeah, kind of, yeah. kind of. Um, it would be like if you took the Rapture Dome from Bioshock and had it topside in kind of like a, a Badlands Desert type planet, except for this blister. So inside Galen's Glory, in theory, it was supposed to be like a habitat controlled, climate controlled dome and a chance for humanity to reclaim a little bit of the luxury and a little bit of sort of the posh lifestyle that existed back in the dark age of technology that has since been lost. 
But as with most of humanity's grander endeavors in this grimdark universe of ours, it has truly gone to shit. And what was built with the best of intentions has now become a cesspool. But on paper, you are very, very lucky because who wouldn't want to live in humanity's first climate-controlled dome in a generation? Inside Galen's glory is a hive city. So the hive cities of the 40K universe are essentially urban sprawl, but if it happened vertically. Over the span of generations, slowly, the equivalent of a metal anthill begins to form. And in a an alarmingly literal visual metaphor for how capitalism grinds people down, there are some real shady floors to this hive. And while the people up top are still able to like vaguely convince themselves that they're living in this luxury dome, everyone down below knows the truth. And the truth is that Galen's glory is a fucking death pit, just like everywhere else in the goddamn galaxy. And if there's one person who knows that, it's you, Lyric. You know this better than almost anyone. You spent your whole life in this fucking dome and in this fucking hive. And, well, you've heard tell and seen a couple of sort of strange oddities from the nightmares that you are are told live outside the dome in the wastelands. You're well aware that inside isn't much safer. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's more dangerous because at least out there, you know that you're low on the food chain. Whereas in here, everyone seems to convince themselves that they're somewhere further up than they actually are. So Lyric, you and your younger brother have been surviving in Galen's glory for as long as you can remember. You had parents at some point, but everyone had parents at some point. Doesn't really matter. (laughs) Um, What matters is you got tough and you got tough fast. And you got tough so he didn't have to. And well, he still has to survive in the lower levels with you. You've managed to spare him from some of the true horrors of living down here. Lyric, what do you look like? I basically look like if Sinead O'Connor got in like daily fights, kind of medium build, but athletic. My head is just like buzzed. I wear tactical clothing, like all all my clothing is tactical. It's kind of like a deep crimson red with kind of silver and gray buckles, gray combat boots. And you can see scars from like fights that I've had, like all my my face and arms. And I always have a bruise on me somewhere, but that's just kind of the nature of where we live. Gotcha. You're in a rare position today of actually having a not terrible day, which for you, Lyric, is kind of like the best day that could happen. Yeah. Your most recent job was for one of the gangs that you sort of intellectually and ethically don't love. They're called the Nashers because they they file their teeth to points. A lot of people on the street in the lower levels would say that there are rumors uh, about them being cannibals. You are fully aware that these are not rumors, but very, very much confirmed facts. Yeah. But uh, despite that unfortunate oddity, they are actually pretty solid when it comes to making sure you get paid on time. So you recently finished a job with the Nashers. As you can imagine, for for people who file their teeth and really that's their thing, dental care is is actually a high concern. So it was a a strange job, but a lucrative one, where you managed to hijack a shipment of what would essentially be a bleaching agent for teeth that also has some kind of restorative properties, a little bit like fluoride, but like grimdark fluoride. (laughs) Uh, Fluoricide. Uh, You managed to to hijack... Crest uh, blood strips. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's just uh, the the toothpaste is named the same way they name paints. So you managed to uh, hijack a shipment of fluoricide, and they were super happy, and their party was alarmingly demure for a, a group of cannibalistic murderers where they were all dipping their teeth in a cup and just like, like, we can't eat for a few hours, and here's your money. So despite the kind of uncomfortable company, for once you actually have a fistful of credits. So the region that you and your brother live in is lovingly known as the glory hole because (laughs) there's a certain tone that comes with living in somewhere that is still advertised on almost every corner, particularly in these lower levels, as paradise. So you are constantly inundated with fucking chippy, cheerful, welcome to Galen's glory posters everywhere. And they're all defaced and old, but built of sturdy stuff. It's a little bit like if the apocalypse happened and you were forced to live in Disneyland, 
it's kind of infuriating how naive these people were to think that this would work out. I think a long time ago, I stopped being actively like mad at that stuff. Oh, and it's yeah. more like I pass it by and I can like crack a sign with the butt of my gun casually as I pass. Sure. And I think that's pretty common down here because, again, there's so few options. That's kind of all there is. But for someone who has never experienced any form of luxury in her life, the idea of people coming, particularly to a planet that is actively and aggressively trying to murder you if you're outside the dome, high radiation levels, bad solar shielding. The only reason anyone is alive on this planet is because of this dome. So fuck you. This was a dumb place to live. But as I said, you have some money in hand today. And that means that you're going to be able to surprise your brother. That's as close to luxury as I think you can get in this this yeah. kind of hellscape. So with your knuckles still hurting from the guard whose jaw you broke, you walk into almost like a canteen bodega kind of joint that okay. is sort of a combination general store and watering hole. Ryan, what is the name of this bar? Blanc's Cabin. Uh, so you walk into Blanc's Cabin <laughs> – and as you do, you tap the helmet that's just above the door. It is an ancient, ancient space marine helmet that mm. uh, has been lovingly dubbed Blanc because as the, the urban legend goes, that's the sound his head made when I bashed it off the ground. Space Marines are essentially legend at this point. You've never seen one. Oh, God, no. Despite what all the Warhammer promotional material would have you believe, they're not a common sight. <laughs> Unlike all my friends in high school who all had them, including me. Um, <laughs> so uh, think like in the way that Star Wars, like people like know of Darth Vader, but like no one sees Darth Vader. It's like that, but on a really, really grand scale. There's no reason to believe in these these sort of mythical things. And to you, it just looks like a fancy person helmet, <laughs> for lack of, right. of a better term. does look functional and looks like high tech and stuff. But I get the sense you don't really trust technology too, too far, which makes sense given that you're living in like the death throes of a cesspool. Yeah. No, I get that people use it and it's no. fine, but it doesn't do me any fucking good. No, no. So you, you tap Blanc on the way in and <laughs> uh, you look around and there's the usual assortment of ne'er-do-wells. The kind of aesthetic of this place is like if a Blade Runner city existed in Mad Max. So outside the dome is like very Mad Max. Inside the dome is a more civilized version of the Mad Max aesthetic. But it is still that kind of rough and tumble. We've repurposed everything vibe. And despite the air controls, everything's just always a little bit dusty. Like there's just a bit of sand kind of everywhere at all times. What you know kind of from um, what Kel taught you back when she was still kicking is that all of the environmental controls degraded years ago. And mm. basically, nothing's being filtered anymore. It's just pumping out whatever was in the filter. So the air is always thick with both heat and also just a sense of staleness. Mm. So you walk into Blanc's and you have a goal. And your goal is to find something your brother would like. Because he was a little bit put out that he didn't get to go on this particular mission with you. But to your mind, there are certain crews that you're very happy to have him on board with. But, like, he has a very, very specific skill set that's very good, but completely useless to a gang like the Nashers, who are real smash and grab, stick around and fight some people types, whereas his specialties lie more so in the I'll get you out of there and then yeah. disappear kind of tactics. So it's kind of an I'm sorry, but also kind of for you a I got this. What do you think you're going to try and get him? I think I want to get him something that will entertain him. Like if there's any sort of new game, I think we have like super shitty consoles because Jesus Christ, he needs some stimulation in his life. Okay. So you know that there is a hacker. And again, like I really can't stress enough how fucked the state of technology is in the, the 40K universe. So much knowledge has been lost that it's a lot of repurposing, similar to uh, kind of how the Fallout games deal with technology, where it's like there's just a lot of stuff and people don't necessarily know what it was for, yeah. but it could be for this. And the interesting thing about Galen's Glory is there was a lot of incredibly avant-garde and edgy tech here back when it started, and there still is in the upper levels. Mm -hmm. But it also means that you occasionally find gearheads who are, are good at this sort of stuff. So you find your old friend Taz, who is just a, a proper meat slab of a human, but has incredibly, incredibly delicate hands. 
And you see him hunched as he always is over a circuit board. And he's using those hands in a way that you've always kind of envied because you've always been a bit more brute forcey. And yeah. the precision with which he tries to rework technology has always been kind of fascinating to you. And uh, he was expecting you because you put this order in a while ago. And he's been building a rudimentary flight simulator because you know that your brother loves going fast. So if he could go fast and up, that's the fucking dream. (laughs) And both of you in in your – I think probably him out loud and more you internally, the idea of getting off this fucking planet, the planet of Vermeer, has always been very, very high on your list. Yeah. But it's like wishing to win the lottery. It's of no value to you because you can't affect it. So when I say a rudimentary flight simulator, I'm talking like some Pong-ass shit. Like it is <laughs> full-on black and green screen. I imagine it like blockout. Oh, kind of yeah. It, it's basically, pass, yeah. And it, it's not really 3D. It's kind of 2D, <laughs> but with that way that people admittedly very brilliantly found to break Old text like to make Fox it. on Super Nintendo kind of. Yeah, 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 exactly. Just like interesting ways or even earlier, like on Atari and stuff, just an interesting way to kind of break it. Yeah. So pretty rudimentary, but you know, it'll probably blow his mind. Taz just looks up and says, oh, Lyric, well, you're back. <laughs> they take any bites out of you or uh, they get their meal elsewhere today. Thanks for supporting the Fable and Folly Network. Here's another show we know you'll love. In a world of covert culinary criminal coalitions. Jean-Carlo. We chef. Reformed criminal and celebrity chef Butch Orson. Prepare the brigade. We chef. Is dragged back into the dark realm of criminal kitchens. Behind. When old rivals threaten his life's work. Corner. Butch is brought back. Uh, uh, Hot. No, 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 no. For one. <laughs> last. <laughs> cook. Open Pandora's oven. Yes, yes chef. chef! John Wick Mitel's Kitchen in Yes, Chef, a comedic actual play adventure of kooky culinary combat, refried revenge, and untold gastronomic horror. Yes Chef is out now on the Dungeons and Drimbus podcast feed. Butchie, a genuine pleasure to see you. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Reslayer's Take. Friends, it's Ryan here, and I'm very excited to be introducing you to a new series. If you're looking for a new all-ages tabletop role-playing adventure, you need to check out Critical Role's latest podcast, The Reslayer's Take. Taking place in the fantasy world of Critical Role, Exandria, you'll be guided through the wild continent of Isilra, home to some of the most dangerous creatures. Here, The Slayer's Take is the most notorious monster-hunting group in the realm. But when this group's previously slain creatures start returning from the grave. It's up to six misfit mercenaries to band together and re-slay these supernatural threats as the re-slayers take. This party is led by a duo of game masters, George Primavera and Nick Williams, with the main cast including Jasmine Bular, Jasper William Cartwright, Caroline Lux, and Jasmine Shaw. So go check out the re-slayers take. Listen to new episodes every Monday anywhere you stream podcasts. Hi there, I'm Tom McGee, and I love stories. And odds are, if you're listening to our shows, you do too. So, if you're wondering how you can help support our storytelling and world building and these wonderful characters and their sometimes ridiculous journeys, you can head on over to patreon.com slash dumdumdice. There you'll find a variety of different levels and different perks, starting from as low as a dollar, which gets you into our Patreon-only Discord, where you can talk about the latest episodes, all the twists and turns, and just generally hang out with some truly lovely people. There's a whole variety of levels with everything from advanced episodes, ad-free feeds, to of course at our $25 level, getting to create your very own character who appears in some of our shows and sometimes becomes a a long-running friend or foe of our characters. So, if you want to get involved, if you want to help us tell more of these stories, then head on over to patreon.com slash dumdumdice. That's D-U-M-B-D-U-M-B-D-I-C-E. And help us create more of these fun adventures together. Oh, because they're cannibals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
That's uh, that was the joke. I have no idea. <laughs> Typical lyric. All right. Well, listen. I uh, hope the kid likes this. It's a, uh, it's a bit wonky. Sometimes you have to blow in it to make the game work. It's a reference for people who were born in the eighties. So, uh, through 46,000. Yes. In, in Galen years, um, what year is this? <laughs> um, there is a Galen calendar. Nice. So, uh, you are in the, uh, Galen nineties. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, 398. Okay. So say Tom nerd, Ryan. Question. Yeah. Yeah. Get in here. But when it comes to timeline, are we pre the latest edition of 40 K with the Indominus crusade right fucking now, baby. Indominus is in full. Gilliman's alive. Gilliman's alive. The fucking, whatever the hell that tear is. That's oh, ripping yeah. up right galaxy. through the middle of the galaxy. It's a train wreck. Gork's smile, I believe is the only one I can remember offhand because blah, but yes, we're right up to date because I thought that would be the most interesting. Great. So uh, I'm sorry, 390s is not nearly long enough for a hive city to exist. So we'll just say that you're calling it the 90s. Um, I was going to say 390 just depends on how fast they go around the sun. <laughs> oh, very, actually, very yeah, long. yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a valid point. That's a very valid point, Ryan. Thank you. So yes, 398, but it's been a while. Um, <laughs> as a general rule, almost everything in the Imperium is like super old, even the new stuff. So whatever I say, just add a bunch of fucking years onto it. Um, <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Here's my, my question to you, Laura. Yeah. You actually find yourself with a bit more cash in hand than you expected, possibly because they felt bad they couldn't share their meal and or tooth whitening with you. Do you pay Taz exactly how much you owe him? Do you pay him more or do you try and talk him down? I pay him exactly what I owe him because it's the price that we agreed upon when we last spoke. Good. And he will get no more, no less. Cool. He also doesn't know you got a tip. So he's just like, this is acceptable. Yeah, great. And he uh, says, you know, uh, one of these days, you got to figure out something for you, huh? What do you mean? You know, give it a think. Maybe one day I can just make something for you. Okay, like be something what? you want. I don't know. You tell me. Maybe I can, I don't know, up the voltage on your electro whip. That seems to be a thing you like. What? Can you do that now? <laughs> and he holds up the exact amount you just paid him. He's like, when you've got this much again, I sure shit can. And I literally pull out the exact same amount. <laughs> <laughs> Because I have it on me. Because I literally just came from those stupid cannibals. Um, I'm thinking you spent that amount to get this thing. Money is oh, hard fuck. to come by in your world. No, right. Yeah, fine. I'll, I'm going to go do another fucking job and I'll be back. So be ready. And he wiggles his fingers and he's like, what the fuck else do you think I do? I assume you get ready. That is exactly <laughs> what I was alluding to. Yes. Yeah, no, you're great. This is why I keep coming back to you. Well, thanks, Lyric. That might be the nicest thing you've ever said to me. And with that, you head out of Blanc's cabin and you start making your way home. Speaking of home, Tyler, you have had to amuse yourself or keep yourself busy for the past couple of days, knowing that yet again, Lyric has cut you out of a plan. And well, admittedly, you're not quite sure how you could have been useful. You're pretty sure you could have been useful. Definitely. Who are you and what do you look like? And more importantly, what are you doing as you're stuck home alone? I'm Lyric's younger brother, Alto. Alto's a young guy. He's like early 20s. He has the same kind of physique as Tom Holland when he's in like Spider-Man mode. So he's, he's like a, got a compact, like not bulky at all, short guy kind of body. He has a metal plate shaped to the back of his head. And while he does look quite slim and small, he wears a night cloak, which is clearly too big for him. It's definitely made for like an adult person, but he wears it. He has a utility mechadendrite that he wears as like a backpack underneath this cloak. So when he's wearing it all, he looks a little bit bigger. He looks like a hunchback, basically. Mm. Uh, it's uh, basically, and so what he's actually doing is without the cloak, he's got the manipulator arm on his back and he's basically bouncing a ball against the wall and trying to catch it with this utility mechadendrite mm. just to make sure that he's got good reflexes within that, like the actuators are responding and stuff like that. And if he's like not able to catch it, he'll like take it off and tinker with it some more. What's your apartment situation? It is basically a hole in the wall with some emergency exits already taken care of in case we need to bolt uh, at any given time. There's very little in the way of personal effects here. Basically nothing that can't just be thrown into a bag and carried out immediately. And I think the back wall has been blasted out and then covered with maybe um, a big blanket just like draped over the wall with like a design on it. So it kind of looks like a really shitty tapestry, but it's just covering like an opening that we can run out when we need to. It's got like two cots for us to sleep on. 
and not much else. There's a table with a lamp and there's clearly some equipment on there like ammunition and, mm-hmm. and things like that. But I'm basically tilting the chair back, bouncing this ball ac- across the room because it's so narrow and small and trying to catch it with my uh, megadendrite. So as you toss the ball for the umpteenth time because you stopped counting also, it's hard to count when you're mostly worried about calibration on a piece of tech you've kind of had to build yourself. Mm-hmm. You go to catch it and you miss but it's the damnedest thing because, like, you know, a bunch of these times it's been because your calibration's been off. This time your calibration was definitely on. And it takes you sort of a moment to realize why. And when the realization hits you, uh, you kind of feel your stomach drop because you realize the wall is shaking so violently that the ball bounced off it at a different trajectory. And then the floor begins to rumble. And that's when you hear the first explosion. So as you rush to the entranceway and kind of like, I don't imagine it's a proper door. It's probably something you've, you've wedged in there. You pull it aside and you see a cathedral falling from the sky. You see massive Shit. chunks of Gothic architecture and metal. And it takes your mind a moment to realize that this is in fact a ship and not architecture. And the shaking is from the first impact against the dome. The dome has been a constant in your existence since you were born. You've certainly dreamt of flight and of, of space, but the dome is the only sky you've ever really known. It was never anything but a given. And that's why when the next piece of debris that hits it shatters a chunk of it, you realize that your whole world is quite literally about to fall apart. And as the first blast of fresh air that you've ever smelt reaches your nose, you think you can hear roars in the distance as all the things that the dome has kept away begin to close in around it. As the chunks of this ship continue to plummet, you see more and more cracks, but above it there's something dark. And as your eyes kind of adjust, you realize that it's the main body of the ship. And it is so large that it blots out most of the sky. And it is plummeting directly for the dome. Your first thought is to Lyric, who is currently on her way back. What do you do? I think about Lyric and then the training that she and Cal have both hammered into me of, okay, this place is compromised. We have to go to our secondary location. Grab your go bag and go. So I throw on my night cloak, I grab my go bag, and I'm out through the hole in the wall behind our fucking rinky-dink little apartment that we've got here. And I'm on my way to um, like a hovel under like a a bridge network. So um, I'm going to say this is Kel's bolt hole. Kel, of course, being the the woman who essentially raised you, sort of a, a hardened bounty hunter who had a number of these bolt holes throughout the city. And basically the idea was if anything goes wrong, go to the first one. If things are really bad... You go to the second one, and if things go completely pear-shaped, there's like a third one you don't talk about. But she was so paranoid that even though she she loved and cared for both of you very much, she still never gave you the location of that third hole. But she did tell you that if things went really, really hairy, get to this hovel in the underpass, and that there'd be more instructions there. The sense you always got from her was that as a woman who took a lot of professional risks but did everything she could to mitigate them— She always seemed to hint that she had a way out of the city, which seems insane because no one leaves the city. But you do remember her showing Lyric a sort of long, pale, pinkish, three-jointed finger once that uh, she claimed to have gotten from a hunt outside the dome. So you kind of feel like, in addition to it being a regrouping point, your only way out of here might be that. So you begin to run there. Lyric, do you go back to the apartment or do you go to the bolt hole? I have spent so much time training Alto to make sure that what he does in case of an emergency are just like complete second nature that I have to trust that he's followed that. So I I have to go to the bolt hole where I trust he'll be. Okay. So you begin to rush your way there and that's roughly when the screams begin. Meanwhile, Inquisitor Valentine, you feel your bolt pistol click dry, having now dropped several of these former crewmen. And you realize, as you kind of observe the corridors that they're, they're spilling out of, that the very ship itself 
seems to be in some ways twisted and, and touched by chaos. For you, every time you close your eyes, you see these figures, these 10 figures around the golden throne. You hear the sickening squelch of the emperor's body hitting the ground in front of you, which is truly the most almost comically blasphemous thing you can think of. And you can feel your, your very sanity balancing on the precipice. You can hear more shouts coming from further down the corridor, but you have managed to clear your way to the escape pods. There's now, uh, for lack of a better term, a trench of dead mutants around you. The crew member you saved, she's badly injured, but is still conscious. Meanwhile, you can feel, again, the ship is screaming at this point. The metal is doing that horrible sound that heavy metal tearing does. That is, again, just a highly unnatural sound. And whenever you've looked down, you've seen what almost looks like a mirage, a, sort of a, a glimmering surface beneath you. But whatever it is, it's coming up damn fast. So my question to you is, do you go and attempt to save the rest of the crew? Do you grab this crew member and hop in? Or do you just hop in the pod? I'll grab this crew member and hop in. He'd look after himself and he'd do what he's supposed to, but he'd like grit his teeth, kind of grab her by the collar if she's down and drag her into the pod. Just along the way, trying to hang on to his sanity, kind of staring at me like, it's a, it's a great day, great day for the emperor, great day. And then he'd just turn around and whistle. And that skull that was on the floor that we heard hit earlier just zips around the corner flying. And he's like, oh, good, Eugene, inside, inside. And Eugene, the loud hailer skull, will also <laughs> fly into the pod. And then the moment everybody's in, help figure out uh, however these eject. And sure. So the Navy officer, she just puts her hand up. She's like, wait. And then she just pulls out her dagger and jams it into a tentacle that was starting to slink around the edge of the door. And it does that weird, like, I don't know why tentacles always scream in movies, but it's like, Aah! and it gets pulled out with, with her dagger. And she's like, didn't have a ticket. Uh, and she slams the door. And then she just points at a button and passes out. Great. I'm going to hit the button first. Mm -hmm. And then how long do I think I have till impact? Basically, if he thinks he could strap both of them in, he'd do it. But if he can only strap one person in, he'd strap himself in. Realistically, falling pretty fast. Also, you're in an escape pod meant for space. Strapping himself in. Yes, yeah, yeah. right. So you strap yourself in. Do you grab Eugene or you just trust that he'll kind of bumble around in the uh, cabin? I think I'd probably grab him. Like, he'd fly around, but it's going to be a collision. So if I could, like, pin him in webbing for, yeah, like, the yeah, loose yeah. stuff where I jam him in, and then I'd probably just do gritted teeth, be praying on the way down. It's like, dear God, Emperor, so it's Lucius. This is obviously not the best day, but it's a good day. It's a good day. Don't worry. It's a good day. Uh, if you could spare your servant on the other side of this, that would be super. Because, you know, or not, also super. Everything is good. And then he's just a hurtling through space. So the pod, <laughs> as soon as you press the button, launches. So it's the classic, like, oh, shit. Like, you're webbing yourself in as it's jettisoning. Immediately, it's just spinning. Fucking cartwheeling down through space. You can feel the um, thrusters firing in every direction as this thing tries to right itself. But if you think about it, for something that's supposed to fire in a vacuum, it's literally just launching a weird cannonball. And you can see other pods launching, but as the viewport flashes past you a couple of times, you see the Gilead's fist just pummel into this dome and completely shatter it. And then as the pod begins to right itself, you see a sight that you've always considered, hypothetically, because it's the kind of thing that you've always been curious about. But the question was always, in a siege, how would one breach a hive city? And the answer is, you drive an entire ship into it, and you see a sight that very few in the Imperium of Man have ever seen. You see a hive city collapse. And that's when your pod crashes through a bridge and into the ground. A few moments later, Lyric, you rush up to the hovel to see Alto looking at the smoking wreckage of what looks like an escape pod. The bridge that the hovel was hidden under is now a pile of rubble cushioning this escape pod. And you see other pods beginning to kind of like hit the ground around you. Meanwhile, behind you, there is a massive blast of dust and dirt as the hive city begins to implode. You can hear screams, you can hear shooting. And in the distance, you think you can see small, pale white things begin to spill up and over the cracks in the dome. But none of that matters for the moment because Alto is okay. Yeah. Alto, you're intact. 
Oh, uh, hi, Lyric. Yeah. Uh, I like, I'll like pat down my chest. And like, uh, yeah, yeah. The I robot so. arm is just like also patting yeah, you down. Yeah. Yeah. All my bits and pieces are, are still with me. Yeah. Okay, good. And you got all the essentials, right? Uh, I just grabbed my go bag. Yeah. Okay, good. That's, that's good. You, you did what you had to do. All right. We got to get the fuck out of here. Uh, yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's makes sense. Are you okay? Yeah. 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 I'm fine. Let's move. Let's move. Let's move. Okay, okay. Alto, you produce the map that had been stowed away by Kel for the two of you. And unfortunately, it was pretty much all you were able to grab before the hovel was decimated by the uh, collapsing bridge. There was more to the package. You managed to get a letter and the map, but there was something on a chain that you weren't quite able to get that is now well gone. And the map points to something called the astral line. And also, this is something that you have hoped was real pretty much your whole life. There was always talk that the great architect Galen was planning a a series of interconnected colonies that would be connected by something called the astral line. It was a way for colonists to travel between the planets without having to brave the, the perils of the warp through a series of essentially rail-launched ships. So think like mm-hmm. a like a rail cannon with a ship attached to it. So less need for fuel. It was a, an easier way to get off planet. And if true, this could be a way for you and Lyric to get off world. I don't know how sentimental Alto is. Would you read this letter? Yeah, oh yeah, he would read it. Yeah, definitely. If it's something that Kel left and it's like new, like it's... <laughs> It's like Kel's been gone so long and here's this letter from her. Like, that's amazing. So it just says, um, well, hey, kids, if you're reading this, I'm probably pretty fucking dead. And I got to tell you, I'm not mad when I'm writing this, but I'm probably mad now (laughs) because being dead is for fucking losers. And I'm just over over his shoulder, (laughs) over his shoulder being like, God, she was so long winded. (laughs) If I know Lyric, she's bitching about how long this letter is. (laughs) Alto, you'd be a good boy and tell her to shut the fuck up, because I'm dead, and she's got to listen to me. I'll wait. Uh, uh, Lyric, Kel says I have to tell you to shut the fuck up, so shut the fuck up. Kel told me that I'm allowed to say it, so... Yeah, thanks, kiddo. Keep reading. Shut shut up, Lyric. You sure that went over real good. Listen, if you're at the second location, that means things went real tits up. And I'm sorry I'm not there to help you, but I did leave something for you just just in case. As you probably determined from looking at this here map that I painstakingly hand drew lyric, (gasps) I love you. There is a way off this hellhole, but I got to tell you, I've been from one side of this galaxy to the other, and there's not much better out there. So only go if you you really got to. I told your sister this, but I, I didn't tell either of you. I came by my skills not growing up as hive rats like you two clowns, but you know, I served under an inquisitor back in the day, and we traveled around a bit, and we saw some things, and I got to tell you, it's a big fucking scary galaxy out there, and it is worse than you can possibly imagine. But if things have gotten bad here, then you got to go. The astral line was meant to be a way for agents of the Inquisition to get planet to planet without anyone paying too much notice. Old Galen was quite nice to uh, us inquisitory folk, and luckily I still got my credentials. So if you use the icon I left you there on my precious icon chain, this will get you in there, and after that, it's up to you. Galaxy's yours, kids. Go fuck them up. Alto's like turning over the envelope, checking the back of the paper, being like, I, we, didn't get, we didn't get her inquisitor symbol. Was it? Was it just th- points to the rubbles. Like, in classic comedic fashion, like a metal pipe just embarrassingly falls off and bounces off the rubble and rolls down. And I just put like my hands to my head. I'm like, well, then what the fuck use is this to us? We can probably still get there and, and, and maybe get on board. I could probably get us on. Can you? Well, then let's go. Um, okay. Lyric, you hear a sound that Kel had described to you a number of times. And looking over your shoulder, it's like a, a cross between a leech and a human. Okay. The face is mostly teeth. The legs seem to have kind of withered to a point that they're no longer usable, but the arms are long with multi-articulated fingers. And you hear one of these things hissing behind you, and behind it you see more. And as the wind blows across your face, you realize that what everyone spent so long trying to keep outside 
is now inside. And as you fall into a combat stance, you see these things coming up over the wreckage around you in all directions. And that's when you hear the roar of a chain sword. And dragging himself out of the escape pod with Eugene under his arm is Inquisitor Valentine. Valentine, you see a couple of weird hive dwellers and what seem to be a a bunch of mutant monstrosities. They don't look chaos necessarily. They look more radiation-y to your eye, but still a threat and still very present. Good news is you just heard them bicker pretty hard about a way off this planet. (laughs) And in the brief moments you were blacked out, standing back in the throne room, you manage to see something. And you get the sense that now, whenever you dream, more of this dark vision will be revealed. But on the uh, woman dressed in robes, you're able to catch just the corner of a tablet as a servitor skull scanned it with light. The date is exactly one year from today, which means you have exactly one year to find these 10 conspirators and put an end to the blasphemy that will destroy the Imperium. Unfortunately, your crew is dead. You haven't been an Inquisitor for very long, (laughs) pretty much since right before you got on this ship. And the second thing you saw in the darkness was a very distinctive Inquisitorial badge hanging around this woman's neck. So you're kind of in need of allies. And as luck would have it, it seems your prayers are answered. Because here are two. And they need your help. Turns out, Inquisitor Valentine, you were right. It is a good day. What do you say to them? Congratulations. You're both under the employ of the Inquisition. Let's kill these mutants. And though they didn't know it at the time, Imperial records would later show that this specific moment, this meeting of these three people, was the beginning of the infamous Valentine heresy. This episode of the Valentine Heresy features Ryan LaPlante at the Ryan LaPlante on Twitter as Inquisitor Lucius Valentine, Tyler Hewitt at Tyler underscore Hewitt on Twitter as Alto, Laura Hamstra at EL Hamstring on Twitter as Lyric, and our Game Master Tom McGee at McGeeTD on Twitter. This episode's sound was edited and mixed by Laura Hamstra, and the Valentine Heresy's artwork was created by Del Borovic at delborovic.com, D-E-L-B-O-R-O-V-I-C. Our theme song is The Hordes by Megan McDuffie, and our ads use the tracks No Control and Chiefs by Jazzar, J-A-H-Z-Z-A-R, available at freemusicarchive.org. When it comes to Dum Dums and Dice, you can visit our website at dumdumdice.com, our Twitter and Instagram are at dumdumdice, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash dumdumdice. We have merchandise available at redbubble.com slash people slash dumdumdice. And most importantly, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash dumdumdice. That's D-U-M-B, D-U-M-B, D-I-C-E. Ave Imperator, a death to all the heretics. Dum Dums and Dice has to give a special thank you to the supreme beings of our Patreon at this time. Christian Manicola, Long Long, The Half-Blind Prophet, James Quayar, DM Rob, Christopher Little, Olin Anderson, Sue One, Devin Boyce, George Dolby, One True Artistry, Orion Birchfield, Anthony Griffin, and Jill and Noel LaPlante. If you want your name to be added to this list, you can join our Patreon too at patreon.com slash Dumb Dumb Dice. Thanks to them, and a little bit of thanks to you. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.